Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear from leading thinkers from our university and around the world. If you would like to hear more from our experts, why not attend Raising the Bar 2017, which will see some of our academics give 20 talks in 10 bars across Sydney, all on one night, Wednesday the 25th of October. To register for your free ticket, head to raisingthebarsydney.com.au. Enjoy the podcast. Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome. Um, This is a great turnout for what will hopefully be a really interesting uh, panel. Uh, Firstly, before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which we meet this evening. The University of Sydney is built upon their ancestral lands. As we share our own knowledge and practice within this university, uh, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded within Aboriginal custodianship of country. My name is Nick Enfield. I'm a professor of linguistics uh, at the University of Sydney. Um, I direct the Sydney Social Sciences and Humanities Advanced Research Centre, and I'm head of the Post-Truth Initiative, uh, which is a, a Sydney Research Excellence Initiative supported this year to look at the nature of truth, the nature of lies, propaganda, bullshit, all of the other varieties of um, uh, mis- uh, you know, misuse of, of facts and evidence and so forth for political ends, um, for uh, all sort of manner of ends. And we have a group of people from philosophy, political science, linguistics, um, media, communications, working on a range of problems. Um, And this evening we are uh, sponsoring this event this evening where we're going to be focusing on uh, the question of um, evidence and the law. So I want to start um, by introducing you to Timothy Cole. Uh, In 1985, Timothy Cole was 26 years old. He was an army veteran studying at Texas Tech in Lubbock in Texas. Um, One evening in 1985, he was at home uh, doing his study while his brother and his brother's friends were playing cards. At the same time, in another part of town, Michelle Mallon, a young woman who was also at Texas Tech, was raped and robbed at gunpoint, sorry, at knife point. Um, Two years later, Cole here was uh, eating at a pizza restaurant, um, was approached by a detective there, got into a conversation with the detective and became a suspect. Uh, at which point, uh, detectives went to visit him at his home, took a photograph of him, uh, and then presented his photograph, which was a Polaroid, with him looking straight at the camera, alongside five other photos, which were side-on profile mugshots. Um, Michelle Mallon said, that's him. He went... Uh, to trial and was uh, convicted and sentenced to 25 years in prison. Uh, It turned out later that the evidence uh, was improperly put together, um, that the uh, eyewitness uh, was wrong, and in fact he died in prison after about 13, 14 years uh, there, and around about the age of 40 he was was dead. His life was finished before that, of course, uh, and it turned out later um, based on DNA evidence that he uh, was not the perpetrator and, in fact, it was somebody else. So in in one fell swoop, uh, this man's uh, life was taken away um, and, at the same time, um, another person who had, in fact, um, uh, perpetrated that crime walked free. And all of this 
story um, is grounded in um, problems of eyewitness uh, misidentification and mishandling um, of evidence. So it's evidently uh, a serious issue. Many of you here are well and truly aware of um, what's at stake, and that's what we're interested um, in looking at this evening. Um, so we're, we're meeting to talk tonight about wrongful conviction of truth, wrong, wrongful conviction and truth. Um, from the description here um, that we circulated, the question we're interested in is when does evidence obscure the truth? This is a forum on the avoidable causes of wrongful conviction. We'll look at how evidence in legal proceedings can inadvertently support false conclusions if handled by non-experts. We'll discuss real-life cases in which errors by eyewitnesses, police, prosecutors and other experts led people to spend years in jail following unfair trials. And we will ask, what can we do to prevent future miscarriages of justice? So what we're going to do this evening um, is firstly I will introduce our panel members and we're going to hear from each of them um, about their own uh, first-hand perspectives on this problem from um, a few different angles and then once we've heard from each of them they're going to spend um, up to around 10 minutes each uh, talking about their own um, work and their own perspective. Then what we want to do is open it up to uh, everybody who's here for um, a conversation, for a discussion. Uh, so I would encourage you all to sort of think about um, what your questions um, are, what your questions might be, what your challenges might be. And when, we're, uh, when we've heard each of the speakers, then we'll open it up um, and we'll have a roving mic and so forth. So we really want to uh, turn it into a conversation. So um, think about that as you're listening to the talks. And I should also say, um, when we're done at 7.30, um, there's some drinks um, in the back and some snacks, so um, if you don't have to run off, please don't. Um, stick around for more um, conversation. So our panel members are Celine Van Gold, Miko Kumar, and Helen Fraser. Let me just say a few um, words about them. So Celine, who we'll hear, about first is a, uh, hear from first, is an associate lecturer in psychology in the School of Psychology here at the University of Sydney. Her research focuses on the reliability of children as eyewitnesses, eyewitness memory in children and adults, and false memories in forensic contexts. Celine is part of the Not Guilty Project here at the University of Sydney. Miko Kumar is a barrister and a senior lecturer, also here at the University of Sydney in the law school. She teaches courses in evidence and procedure. She's just come from uh, the lecture theatre, actually, so we're lucky to have her here. Uh, Miko was admitted as a solicitor in 1996 and called to the bar in 2001. As a solicitor she worked at the office of the Director of Public Prosecutions New South Wales and Crown Solicitor's Office. She was a law reform officer at the Australian Law Reform Commission and worked on the adversar adversarial system of litigation inquiry. She's also part of the Not Guilty Project here at the University of Sydney. Um, and thirdly, we'll hear from Dr. Helen Fraser, who is a forensic phonetician. Helen studied phonetics and related subjects at Macquarie University and at the University of Edinburgh, where she received her PhD. She then taught at the University of New England from 1990 to 2008. Since then, she's worked as a researcher and consultant, focusing mainly on forensic transcription and on spoken communication between native and non-native speakers of English. Helen is founder of Forensic Transcription Australia, 
which, I quote, exists to raise public awareness of a legal anomaly that compromises the fairness of trials in our criminal courts on a weekly basis. So um, I'm looking very much forward to the uh, talks, and so um, let's, without further ado, start with Celine. Thank you, Nick, for the introduction. So my name is Celine, and I work here as an associate lecturer in forensic psychology. Now, a lot of people, when they hear wrongful convictions, they automatically think about the law and any legal aspects, and they wonder how psychology actually comes into play. So using a um, real-life case of a wrongful conviction, I will hopefully be able to convince you why forensic psychology is so important when we're looking at wrongful convictions, not just in addressing them, but hopefully also in preventing them in the future. So today I want to talk about Greg Kelly. And Greg Kelly was an 18-year-old boy in 2013 when a couple of live events meant that he found himself in a very unfortunate situation. So his mom was suffering from a brain tumor and needed to undergo surgery. Um, at the same time that she was in surgery, his dad suffered a stroke. This meant that there was no one to look after Greg and he was in his final year of high school. He was a very promising American football player and he was um, offered a scholarship to go to university later on in 2013. Because it was all by himself, um, a friend of him actually offered that he could stay at his parents' place. So he stayed at this house of which the mother that uh, ran the household also ran a daycare facility from her house. Now, all went fine. He finished his final year of high school. He packed everything up in uh, around May to move to the university town where he was going to go and study. When in July of 2013, a four-year-old boy from that daycare, um, unprovoked, said to his parents, uh, one of the football players has, um, has touched me inappropriately. Well, he technically said a boy came up to him during nap time when he was staying at the daycare center and put his penis in his mouth. Now, he's quite accurate in describing this, this guy. He said he was playing for the football team, he had a bus cut haircut, he had bushy eyebrows, and he was tall and looked like a football player. And very remarkable, he said, oh, when it all happened, this boy was wearing um, SpongeBob SquarePants PJs, which is particular for a football player, but yeah. So um, the parents, of course, were very worried about this, and they spoke to him, and they asked him questions, and the little child said that it happened on two occasions. So they went to the police, and the police started to investigate straight away. While they were questioning this little boy, the name Greg came up, and he said, like, oh, Greg did it, but he also said Jonathan did it, and there were a couple of names that were mentioned. However, that initial name, Greg, kept on playing on the police's minds, and they started interviewing other kids from the daycare center, because they said, like, well, just with the one child, we don't have any forensic evidence to follow this up. We need to have more people that, um, of more kids that have experienced this to actually build a case. Now, almost none of the kids came forward and said that something similar happened to them, but the parents did. And one parent said, like, oh, my son came to me and said that this Greg boy also touched him. And he made my son touch other kids as well. So that was the second child that was complaining, and that was enough for the police to actually um, arrest Greg. But Greg always denied, and he said, well, i never done this. But police said, well, we can place you at the house. You were there. There's a child that mentions your name. Um, so they prosecuted him. And he was actually convicted um, when he was put to trial. Now, 
Well, during the trial, two kids testified. One boy was very adamant and he said, like, yes, this happened to me. This guy, um, like, abused me. While the other child, the second child, whose dad came forward, actually retracted his statement and said, this guy never touched me. But the jury thought it was convincing enough that the one child made the accusation and they said it's a four-year-old child. How did he know any of these details? He was very like, clear in describing what the perpetrator looked like and Greg was convicted to jail, uh, to 25 years in prison. Now, last week, Greg actually was released from prison and that was because his lawyers did a thorough investigation. He always kept on denying that he committed this crime. And when the lawyers looked further into the case, and specifically how the police had handled the case, they saw a lot of problems. One of the problems was with how the police had interviewed the children. So they actually admitted themselves in court that they asked quite leading questions. They had this one person that they thought was the perpetrator, Greg, and they went into every interview with the kids and started asking questions really directed and implying that Greg had touched them as well. And then what, another problem what, they, uh, what came forward is that they didn't actually consider any other suspects. Even though the initial child had mentioned several names, they only focused on Greg. But the most important part was that um, when they actually tracked phone records and when the child came forward in July, Greg hadn't been in the house and hadn't been living in the house for two months already. And when they looked at the dates that the child was in the daycare center and they tracked Greg's phone, they found that Greg was never there when the child was there as well. So he actually couldn't have committed the crimes because he was never present in the same place as the child. Now, a lot of things went wrong in this case, but what I want to focus on is on how leading questions can influence memories of adults and children and can come to actually wrongful convictions. Now to better understand that, we need to understand how memory works. So unlike popular belief, memory is not a direct record of what we experience. A lot of people think that memory works like Netflix. If you want to think back about a specific scene, what you do is you select the show that you want to look at, then you select the episode, fast forward to the specific scene, pause it, and you can describe everything that is on the screen at that time. But memory doesn't work that way. Memory is reconstructive. And what this means is that every time that we try to remember something, the way we feel at that point, who we are talking to, the questions that we ask, and information that we've encountered after the fact will influence what we will remember. So if you're very happy and you think back about a specific event, you will remember it in a much happier way than if you're very sad and you think about the exact same event. But even like different people that you talk to will change the way that you remember events. Now, what we also know is that memory decays over time, and it decays very rapidly. Within the first day after experiencing an event, we will forget about 60% of all the details of that specific event, so that's a lot. Now, if we are later asked about that specific event and questions, and we don't remember all the details, what sometimes happens is that we take on suggestions from people that are asking us questions about the events. And that's, for example, what happened within this case, where the police went in and they put suggestions in their questions about Greg committing a crime, about details of the crime. And the kids who don't remember those specific details will incorporate the suggestions in their memory and start reporting those details. Now this doesn't just happen to kids, it happens to everyone, it happens to adults, it happens to me as well, even though I know all this information. It's just a natural process and we can actually not protect ourselves against it. Um, so 
one point that has to be made. So if we look at this case from Greg, the police actually acknowledged that they asked the kids leading questions. Moreover, how they went into the interview, they said like they went in with like in full uniform with their guns visible and they were interviewing very young kids. Now, as you can imagine, it is a very um, like impressive thing if a police officer asks you questions already. And they're authoritative figures, they are a person that you are supposed to be honest to, but also that you have to respect. And you don't want to disagree as a young child with a police officer. So what we see is that some um, people are very suggestible or very compliant, and they go more along with suggestions than others. And what we see is that younger kids and older adults are even more suggestible and compliant than, for example, um, normal adults or adults within a medium range. Um, so what happens with these kids is that they all came to believe that they were abused by this guy, Greg. Now, should we disregard everything that kids say? Should we just say, like, well, they're too suggestible, too compliant, and we should never rely on what they're saying? We should not do that, absolutely not, because even very young kids are able to accurately remember um, specific events. And they can describe the events pretty accurately as long as we ask them the right questions. And what we see is that, for example, specific details that this young boy came up with were actually indicative of how well his memory was for the event. Because if we look who the actual perpetrator was or who's the suspect at the moment and who's going to be prosecuted for this crime, we see that it was the friend of Greg that invited him to come and stay at the house. So I have the other picture. If we look at him, so this is Jonathan uh, McCarty, and he was the son of the woman running the daycare. Now, he was actually well known in his high school to wear SpongeBob SquarePants, and he wore them uh, pajama pants through school, and he wore them all the time. And as you can see, he actually fits the description that the young child gave. So he's got the buzz cards, he's got the bushy eyebrows. Um, so what we know is that kids can accurately remember specific details, can describe them, but we need to make sure that we ask the right questions and in an appropriate way. And this is exactly the same for adults, it's not just with kids. So I don't know exactly how much time that I've left, but to, what I want to sum up is that eyewitness memory is very important. It's very suggestible, it's reconstructive. When a person has witnessed a crime, it's very easy to change their memory for that specific event. It can be intentionally, it can be unintentionally. But the problem is that after you've changed the memory, it's really difficult to access the original memory trace. And once you have contaminated the memory, you don't know what exactly has happened. And what is not the truth becomes the truth to that person trying to remember the event. This is not just with kids, but it's also with adults. And it's a big problem within wrongful convictions. Um, thank you. Um, I teach evidence at uh, University of Sydney Law School and um, the law of evidence is concerned with making sure that the information that comes into a, into a trial is information which is reliable, which is information that can be tested, um, that can be challenged, um, that is, is, the, is the, the best evidence. Um, so the rules of evidence they aim to get to the correct decision. OK? 
Okay, so that's what the rationale for many of the rules are, the rule against hearsay and various other rules, the rules about relying on previous convictions in, in a criminal trial. But sometimes the rules get it wrong and um, the, the, the failure of the system can be seen when there is an unlawful um, conviction because an unlawful conviction or a wrongful conviction is one which is a, a, a huge injustice. Um, so the system can get it wrong if, for example, the um, wrong evidence is tendered. So evidence which should be, have been inadmissible is used in, in the trial and a jury then comes to a wrongful conviction. Or there could be an error because evidence is not disclosed to the defence and so they can't use that material um, in their defence. There can be a whole raft of reasons why a, a wrongful conviction um, is the result of, of a trial. And also it's important to, to note, well, what is a wrongful conviction? Is, is a person that um, pleads not guilty and then a jury convicts them, uh, do they, they, they would say that they're wrongfully convicted? Um, is, is a wrongful conviction only one when the appeal, appeal court uh, quashes the conviction and enters an acquittal? Um, is a wrongful conviction one where somebody is exonerated because DNA evidence shows that they, that they, they couldn't have been the offender? And that's been the case in a number of um, US innocence projects where um, DNA evidence has shown that the, the particular person who has been convicted could not be the offender, so they are, um, their, their innocence is proven. Uh, or, or is, is it... Um, uh, can we show uh, that there's been a wrongful conviction if somebody else um, admits that they have been the one, that they're, that they're the offender? So there's a whole way, number of ways in which we can show that something is a wrongful conviction, but we do know that they do occur. And an example um, of a wrongful conviction where there was evidence that shouldn't have been tendered and there was also um, evidence which was not disclosed to the, to the, um, the accused is seen in the case of Andrew Mallard. So Andrew Mallard was um, uh, living in, in Western Australia and he was convicted of a murder, of the murder of a, of a woman in a shop. And the primary evidence that the prosecution relied on were interviews that Mallard had had with the police. Now Mallard was discharged from a psychiatric hospital on the same day that the first interview that he had with police. He was interviewed by police for eight hours and the police did not record any of this interview with audio or visual equipment. So which that's quite unusual that the, the police um, don't uh, record it and as is the law now, um, investigating police um, need to tape any interview that they had, they have with an accused in order for that um, interview to be subsequently played in court and, and used. Um, so in the Andrew Mallard case, there were, there were two interviews um, with, that police had with the Mallard. Both were not recorded. So the evidence came into court by way of the police giving oral evidence of what the accused said. And there was a third interview which was recorded, um, but was, which was very peculiar because Mallard was talking in the third person and, and saying that, that the killer would have done things this way. So it, it, was, um, it was very peculiar evidence. Now, he was convicted. Um, an appeal to the Court of Appeal failed 
and even special leave to the High Court in 1997 failed. And the, the appeal was based on the fact that these admissions were, were tendered and used by the jury. It wasn't until 2003 when he sought a pardon of clemency, a petition of clemency, and he applied again to the, to the CCA in Western Australia based on the fact that the prosecution um, had not disclosed to him a number of various pieces of evidence, but the most important was um, experiments that the police and the foren forensic pathologists had done back in the 90s where they had um, used the alleged murder weapon, which was never actually found, and they conducted experiments on a pig's head and the forensic pathologist came to the view that this weapon could never, could not have inflicted the, the injuries which were on the deceased. So this was evidence which would have been highly relevant for Mallard's defence, um, yet it was withheld from him at the trial. But this came to light, but the, 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 Victoria, the, sorry, the Western Australian um, CCA uh, found that the convictions stood, but the High Court thought differently. So special leave was granted. The High Court heard the appeal in 2005. They heard it in September and by November they had, um, they had quashed his conviction but they ordered a retrial. But they did note that the admissions, the two, un two sets of unrecorded admissions would not, have been, would not be admissible in the new trial because the law had changed. Um, and the, uh, and, and, um, the DPP decided not to um, uh, prosecute Mallard, and in February 2006, he was released from jail. The police subsequently reviewed the, the, the evidence, and they um, had a new suspect who was charged but committed suicide before, before the trial. The prosecutor who prosecuted Mallard um, was found guilty of misconduct, um, and two police officers were also um, found that they had engaged in misconduct as well. But it's a very sad um, example of where so many things went wrong. And actually, it, it's sad also because the High Court, his first set of appeal proceedings failed. It took an extra um, set of proceedings um, in a very in a, in a in a way that which is quite hard to litigate to, to get a pardon of a petition of clemency to then um, finally release him. So that's an example of a wrongful conviction. So hello everybody. I'm afraid I need the technology. So I'm going to uh, just test the audio. Unfortunately, we couldn't get it working before, so I'm going to try and play it through this microphone. And later on, I'll be uh, playing some audio that you might like to have a pen to jot down. So if you feel like it, have a pen nearby. It's not compulsory. Uh, so as Nick said, my name's Helen Fraser, and uh, I run a little company called Forensic Phonetics Australia, and I'll be making reference to that website. I'll give it to you again at the end. And uh, it was very useful having these uh, fascinating cases. Uh, I'm going to be talking about one that happened right here in Sydney and is still, in a sense, ongoing. And this is something that could happen to any of you. Uh, it has to do with covert recording, sometimes called bugging. And this is when police, if you're a suspect in a crime, they will uh, capture your conversation without the knowledge of the participants. 
Covert recordings provide extremely powerful evidence, allowing the court to hear people saying things that they would not say overtly in court. And they're used extremely frequently in our uh, criminal justice system now. The problem with covert recordings is it's very difficult to control the recording conditions, and so they're frequently of very poor quality. So that's what I want to play you an example of. So it is very poor quality, it's hard to hear. I want to emphasize I'm only going to play you 14 seconds, but it comes from much longer recording. So here we go. I'll try doing this. Did anyone jot anything down? This is what we mean when we say indistinct, okay? It doesn't mean you can sort of hear it, but you weren't sure of one or the other word. It's really, really indistinct. This audio system makes it even worse, but it really genuinely is indistinct. Uh, so this audio is, comes from a case that I call the pact case. And that conversation you just heard was a secret conversation about a pact that was made in relation to a murder. And I'll give you a, a, the website, it's got a full case study there. The issue in the trial is, was it a pact to commit murder or a pact to conceal murder? And it's very, very different in the law. One, you're in, guilty of murder and the other you're not. Most of the evidence in the trial was circumstantial. And the only piece of direct evidence is that audio that you just heard, uh, which was crucial to the verdict. So having said all that, would you like to listen again? Did anybody hear whether it was a pact to commit or conceal? So what, what would help you? You might say, oh, well, we should get this enhanced. Get rid of some of the background noise, make it sound a bit clearer. Believe it or not, this actually is the enhanced version. <laughs> and as a general point, I don't have time to go into it now, but enhancing is something that you do to good quality audio. It is not possible to make unintelligible audio intelligible through any kind of processing that audio engineers do. What about if you had headphones and even a proper microphone, well, certainly that would help, but it definitely would not be enough. You'd have to listen many times. Even if you did listen many times, how many times do you think you'd have to have until you were sure you got it right? And when you were sure you got it right, what if you compared your transcript with somebody else? Would it be the same or different? So these are important issues. So here's what really helps, and it's to have a transcript. So I'm going to play it again, and this time I'm going to show you the transcript of what he says. Okay? Much clearer? Did anybody disagree with any of it? Anything you thought was wrong? Okay, so uh, 
If we go back to the 1980s, when it was becoming more and more common for covert recordings to be used in this way, the law recognized the, rule, the value of a transcript. And in this uh, important landmark high court case called Butera in 1987, it was ruled that transcripts could be allowed in court to assist the jury in hearing audio like that. So the key question is who should make the transcript? And it's typically done by detectives working on the case. And it's, the reason is that detectives can often hear far more than others. <laughs> and so this role for the police is often quite alarming to those from outside the law. But we have to recognize that the law has many checks and balances to make sure that the jury won't just read the police transcript. Some people are very cynical about the police. Uh, and they think, well, obviously the jury will just read whatever the police say and accept that. So the law has many checks and balances. I don't have much time, but I'm going to very, very quickly run through some of them. So the first one is that the, de the defense should check the transcript very carefully and bring any disagreement to notice so that it can be resolved. If there's a, a dispute that can't be resolved, the judge can listen personally and, in fact, can exclude either the audio or the transcript uh, if, if they want to. Uh, but this is very unusual. I'm skipping over very quickly because there's not much time. The most important part is that the judge is required to direct the jury carefully to say that they should use the transcript only as an aid. The evidence is the audio, not the transcript, and they should listen very carefully to the audio and reach their own opinion as to what was said. And then the audio is obviously given to the jury with the transcript to take into the uh, jury room and they can listen as many times as they want. So that's all fine then, right? Not really. And this packed case shows why not. So this audio was, was transcribed by a detective and the transcript was used exactly as intended by the law. The key phrase at the start, we made a pact, was uh, assisted the jury to decide that the defendant was an accessory before the fact and he was, sentenced to, uh, he was convicted of murder and sentenced for 30 years. It's just one tiny problem. Can you guess what it is? He never said that. If you analyze that phrase, uh, at the start we made a pact is inaccurate. In fact, the word pact is not used at all. It's not just inaccurate, it's implausible. The rhythm is wrong, the consonants, the vowels, there are many aspects of this that don't fit at the start we made a pact. Unfortunately, now that I've primed you with the idea that it says at the start we made a pact, it's difficult for you to listen to it with fresh ears. But I'd like to play again just the tiny bit that it's only going to be 2.5 seconds this time. And just try to listen very analytically and see if you really think it says at the start we made a pact. What did you think he said? <laughs> There's only one way to be really sure of the effect of the transcript. You can't read the transcript and then listen and then decide whether it was affecting you or not. The best way is to think what's, to find out what do people hear when they played the audio with no transcript before they know anything about it, no context or anything. And here's some of the things that people hear. And you'll notice that nobody ever hears anything about a pact. And in fact, many of them hear things with a completely different kind of rhythm. 
And many of them have something to do with payback or playback or something like that. And in fact, no one has ever... I've played this audio on many, many, many occasions, including in an experiment that I'll just explain to you in a minute. Nobody has ever heard anything about a pact, let alone anything remotely like at the start we made a pact. <laughs> Except, of course, the detective. So does this matter? Surely the jury will hear this in the jury room and they'll say, oh, he didn't say that, and they won't take that into account. Well, in this case, the whole case hinged on the nature of the pact. The only direct evidence of any pact at all is the police transcript. All the circumstantial evidence only is significant if you think there's some kind of a pact and you're deciding whether it's this pact or that pact. And I'd like to commend that uh, article, that study to you. I don't have time to tell you about it right now, but it's available on the website that I'll tell you at the end. It's about tunnel vision and how getting one thing wrong can affect everything else that you understand. So if the transcript is wrong, the whole case should fall apart. Unfortunately, I only came along to show that the, that the transcript of that phrase was wrong after the case was com completed and it had been through to the High Court, all appeals were exhausted. The only thing left to do was to have an application to review the conviction. That's the kind of thing that Miko just mentioned. It's very, very difficult to get through this. Almost, I often say you're more likely to get an ARC grant than to get an application like that accepted. So we needed a very, very strong case. So I did this experiment with a colleague of mine. Uh, I don't have time to go into it, but we played it first without context and then uh, offered, uh, as you can see, nobody ever heard PACT, as I've already described to you. And if you suggest PACT, 27% of the people hear something about a PACT, not that phrase. But then if you give them an alternative based on that payback transcript, people abandon it. However, if you give them the context, as the jury would have, this is a, a case about a pact and you have to decide this and that, now many, many more people hear exactly that phrase and very uh, many fewer abandon the phrase when they're given a more plausible alternative. Okay? And we also tested that statistically it affected the opinions of guilt. So this, uh, along with a lot of other things, went into the application for inquiry into the conviction, and the result was rejected. This is really unsurprising, but the important thing is the reasons that were given, which were really quite alarming, and really showed no understanding of the scientific arguments that had been put forward. It was really all about upholding legal authority, saying, well, his honor had no difficulty discerning the phrase, he gave appropriate instructions to the jury, and the jury was fully able to reach their own opinion. Well, in my opinion, that is false. They may have been able to reach their own opinion, but they weren't very likely to reach the right opinion that he didn't say that. Uh, so there's many problems with it. I'd just like to give you one tiny flavor of the problems. And that has to do with the idea that the judge himself had no difficulty discerning the phrase. So here's a short section from the uh, transcript of the Voidia, the section where they decide whether the audio is admissible or not. The first thing the, His Honor says is, as I said, my ears aren't necessarily the best. Previously, there had been a lot of discussion about the fact that he was quite hard of hearing. That's not the important thing, though. 
what does he do? He turns to the Crown Prosecutor, Mr. Crown, I assume you have listened to this tape a number of times. Crown Prosecutor, yes, I have. Do you have normal hearing, can I inquire? Yes, I do. I did have a hearing problem two years ago, <laughs> but it's resolved itself and now I do have good hearing. Have you conducted a check yourself as to whether what appears in the transcript to your ears also appears on the tape? What do you think his answer is going to be? This is the prosecutor. Yes, I have. There was part of that passage at the bottom of page blah, 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 blah. Then he goes, apart from that, the rest of it I heard quite distinctly. Now, I would hope that you would agree with me. There is nothing distinct about that audio. If somebody feels that they're hearing that audio quite distinctly, something is influencing their hearing. So here's something even worse. What does the defence say? This is not part of that same thing, but uh, later on in a different section. The defence barrister says, I'm not objecting to that portion, meaning at the start we made a pact. The part about the pact, I'm not objecting to that. And he goes on, he is objecting to the transcript as a whole. The defence themselves believed that he said, at the start we made a pact. And they built the case around this. How is this possible? How can the, even the defence get it wrong? Of course, it's hugely in their client's interest to hear it accurately. They, you can't say that they're just being biased. They, they are hearing this. The problem is that the law has developed all this process that I went through very briefly earlier on the basis of common knowledge about language and speech. They see interpretation of language and perception of speech as being matters of common knowledge, that experts have no, more, no better opinion than anybody else. Uh, they believe that listeners hear what's there to be heard and the transcript assists them. They've had no input from phonetics, the science of speech. The checks and balances are insufficient. The problem is the lawyers are the gatekeepers. Lawyers do understand about priming, but they think that they themselves are immune to priming. No one is immune from priming. I'm a phonetician. I'm not immune from priming. The important thing is to know that and to manage priming, not try to avoid it. So I don't have any more time, but I'd leave you with one small humorous thing just to show you that even you are not immune from priming. And here is an English comedian called Peter Kay. Some of you may know him. He's going to sing you a song saying, your burgers are the best. And then another one in short, it's only 30 seconds. avoid this kind of stuff. Okay, so it's not just this case. There are many cases. We need a better way. I've only shown you a brief instance of the problem. We've got to have a solution. And that's that website that I mentioned. So,
Great. Well, thank you um, very much to all of our um, panel members who've um, now introduced quite a lot of challenging and interesting um, information with these case studies, um, but also a lot of uh, fascinating problems that we want to be able to solve and want to be able to better understand. <clears throat> um, I've got some questions myself that I could kind of um, chip in with. Um, maybe I'll just start, maybe by just talking, um, asking Celine, and w those of you who have questions can begin to sort of um, formulate them. Um, I mean, it's also partly sort of for, for all of you in a way. Um, what I'm interested in is how much of the kind of problems that we're talking about here are based in sort of the, the cognition, in a way, of the people who are involved in making judgments. Um, I mean, that's what seems to me to be the kind of theme here, um, that we, we're sort of focusing on, on evidence and these kinds of questions. But, um, you know, in, in, in Helen's, um, the, what we were just hearing um, about from Helen, there's this sense in which people's brains, in a way, are kind of projecting, uh, you know, filling in what the evidence and not even realising that they're sort of filling that in. In, in the kinds of cases um, that you were talking about, you know, we had... Um, you know, sort of people, either detectives or jury members, coming to a conclusion or being led to a conclusion and therefore bracketing out all the other possibilities. Uh, the way, you know, you described with the uh, detectives who were, they decided that it was this person. And, you know, to my mind, it reminds me of these kinds of um, uh, heuristics that we use in, in, in thinking where we come to a conclusion about something, whether it's the law or something else, and what we typically do is throw away you know, uh, further efforts to try to seek other sort of solutions and we just latch on to that one. So the question is sort of how much do you think everything we've been hearing about kind of really boils down to the foibles of, of human cognition? Well, everything. <laughs> I think like in the end what you'll see and that was like what all of our like explanations had in common is that you get this confirmation bias. Um, you, you get, people have a specific idea about who is the guilty person or for example with Helen's um, case where a detective who's been so invested in the case has been working on it for a very long time, gets very involved and wants to find the person who perpetrated, like who committed a crime and you can almost not listen to a recording like that if you're so invested in, in a thing like that without having a specific well, you prime yourself to hear something that will incriminate this person. So you're looking for anything that will confirm your opinion or your idea. In my case, it's like, oh, well, this guy heard a small boy talking about how he's sexually abused. He names this guy named Greg. This person is there. His name is Greg. He fulfills all the, the whole description. And it's the easiest way to go about. And as you said, like in everyday life, we always, your brain always tries to find shortcuts to solve problems as quickly as possible. You cannot possibly think about every single possibility or every single avenue. So what you do is you look at the facts that are in front of you, you look what is the most plausible solution, and that's the one that you're gonna invest in. And once you have focused on that one, you get an anchoring effect where it's really difficult to actually then see, like you get this tunnel vision, it's really difficult to even consider other options because that's the one that you've invested in and that is the most plausible at that point. I wonder, Mika, if you could kind of comment on this because what I thought was interesting about the case you, said, you talked about was that in the end um, uh, people were actually convicted of misconduct in that original case. So, and I, I, Celine, you didn't say that anybody was. So that sort of suggests that there was 
there was actually attribution of some sort of, you know, intention or no knowledgeable kind of perversion of the case. So can you comment on that? Well, I, um, it, there was a, an inquiry by the, um, like their, their equivalent of, the, of ICAC um, into what the, um, the, the two senior police officers and the prosecutor did. And all that, I know that the outcome was that they were fined for their misconduct, but it was more about the fact that they withheld um, evidence that should have been disclosed to, um, to the defendant, because that was quite critical evidence about um, you know, the experiments with the pig's head. And the police had actually, when they had interviewed Mallard, they had got him to draw um, a, a wrench, and that was actually used as um, a piece of evidence in the trial as the murder weapon. So the prosecution case was based on the fact that the murder weapon was this wrench. Um, but then they also had testing done of the wrench with the pig's head that showed that the injuries that were inflicted on the deceased's body could not have been inflicted as they were. So this was yeah, vital evidence that the, that, the, that the accused should have had. So the police there yeah, were, were engaging in misconduct, not just tunnel vision. So it might have started as tunnel vision, but then it developed into something else. But um, of concern was that the prosecutor was also... Well, he was fined for misconduct as well, and um, yeah. So, and that was the person that ran the trial. Yeah, that's quite unusual. So, I'd like to open it up. I mean, we've got quite a lot of time for discussion and for uh, comments to be um, sort of uh, pitched at our at our panel. Uh, first of all, thank you so much. This was really, really interesting. Um, essentially what I take away from your talk is that there are a lot of pieces of evidence that have been presented to a jury that skewed that jury in a certain direction that maybe should not have been presented in the first place. So how viable is it to set up sort of a standard for the dismissal of certain evidence that should not be presented and that maybe wasn't done with very good uh, standards or would that create maybe more harm than good? I, I think that's what we hope we already have, that the, we have the, the Evidence Act which regulates what information comes before the jury and it's hoped that you know, rules that require that all evidence be relevant, um, that the judge has a discretion to exclude evidence where the judge is of the view that there's unfair prejudice. We, we hope that that makes sure that we have reliable evidence before the, before the jury, um, that the jury are appropriately um, directed. Um, we, we hope that our, that our rules that regulate expert evidence, so there's a lot of expert evidence that, um, that can be used in a criminal trial, we hope that it makes sure that only reliable expert evidence um, is before the jury. But all of these things um, have been shown to not work all the time. So um, Can I yeah. like, add to that? Well, like, what, what I believe, like, and there's always the the difference between the law and science. And that's why, for example, with the project that we're doing, we let scientists and law students work together, like science students and law students work together because we can learn a lot from each other. And yes, we've got all the rules and regulations, but I often think that the law doesn't use their options enough. So for example, within the case that Helen mentioned, it would have been such a good idea to actually have her straight away. And I think a lot of defense lawyers don't automatically think about, oh, well, this is considered common knowledge and maybe it, like, 
the judge will make a decision saying like, well, the jury should just notice and for that reason we don't need a scientist. But I think defense lawyers and just the legal system in general should more work with scientists who have the proper knowledge, who inv like invest all their time, research these type of things. And a lot of things that are considered common knowledge are actually not. And if we get scientists more involved within the legal system, but really start from the beginning where legal students already know like okay how can scientists actually benefit this and then hopefully educate the judges as well so they will more often rule because there is the possibility to ask for an expert witness and that might benefit change hi there um, my question is i have experienced through being a social worker working with quite small children who have <clears throat> uh, experienced historical sexual abuse and have then gone along to the joint investigation response team, made their interviews. Um, in one particular case, the child had a severe speech sound disorder and the DPP or JERT, I'm not sure, decided that it would be inadmissible evidence in the case. I'm just wondering how they and why they came to that conclusion before the trial had even happened. Um, when I asked that question, the answer I got was that the defence would say, well, it's hearsay, you can't understand her, blah, 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 blah. I don't even know what I'm asking, well, but no, it's sort I, of... <laughs> I think that there's, there, there might have been an issue with the competence of the child and their capacity to understand a question and give an answer. So the Evidence Act um, requires that in order for a witness to give evidence, they have to, to, to show that they have capacity to understand questions and to give an answer. And then that, there's a test for when whether they can give sworn or unsworn evidence. But in your example, I, wasn't there somebody that could interpret what the, what the child was saying because now they have they, I mean there are a lot of reforms in, in, in the area of um, child sexual assault so for example there's a pilot scheme that, that, that is in New South Wales where a child is gives the interview at, at JERT and they have a witness intermediary which is a person that makes sure that the child can understand the questions that the police are asking and then there is a pre-recorded hearing soon after that where the Crown Prosecutor asks the child questions and the defence cross-examines and the intermediary is still present with the child to make sure that, that the child can understand. And then that tape is used for the trial which might occur, I don't know, sometime in the future and it could be a retrial and then the, the pre-recorded evidence is then used as a, it's admissible as the evidence of that child. So it's a, if it was pre-recorded evidence. Yeah. But it's a new scheme, so it's, it hasn't been in operation for very long. But it's not all throughout New South Wales, it's only in, in, I think, in parts of New South but Wales. But it's really good that they're doing it. Yes, it's yeah. excellent yeah. that they're doing yeah. it. She's gone back with somebody there now who's interpreting and making sure that understand Yeah, no, it's brilliant. It's, it's a much-needed reform. Right, thank you. I just had a question in regards to uh, something which flowed from the previous gentleman who uh, inquired about the current rules and what you had mentioned about the Evidence Act that we have in place here in New South Wales. Uh, it's more of a general inquiry, but are, are there statistics available, uh, perhaps with Project Innocence, let's say, which indicate 
the level or the number of wrongful commission, uh, convictions in states where the Evidence Act has been implemented versus states where we saw the common law um, in that regard? I don't know of any, but they're pretty. They're pretty similar. There's not huge differences between um, those states which have the common law and other statutes regulating the admissibility of evidence, and those states which are under the Uniform Evidence Act legislation. So, the Evidence Act is in Victoria, New South Wales, um, ACT, Northern Territory, in the majority of Australia, in Tasmania, um, but the, there's not too much difference between, um, between how those two bodies of law operate. So I wouldn't say that that necessarily would be a, a, um, a reason for there to be more wrongful convictions in common law states. But with my case example, a big difference between when Mallard was prosecuted and what would have happened if he was prosecuted today is the admissibility of the admissions obtained by police without recording them. So now if police suspect someone of an indictable offence and they um, interview them, in order for any admission made by the, the suspect to be admissible, it has to be recorded, which is a, is a, is a, a very good reform because that prevents verbaling and so forth. Um, hi, thank you. Um, thank you for your presentation. I'm a member of the general public with no working knowledge of the criminal justice system, so thank you for your presentation. It's been very insightful. While I was doing background research for this public lecture, I found many aspects of the criminal justice systems in relation to wrongful conviction to be very concerning. One aspect is forensic DNA testing. I have read about problems in the UK system from New Scientist website and problems in the US um, USA from news articles and the book Inside the Cell. Many issues have been raised about forensic DNA testing that may lead to miscarriages of justice. For example, contaminated samples, lab methods using, used leading to erroneous conclusions, subjective interpretation and misinterpretation of DNA test results, lab, labs under police or prosecution control, forensic scientists in lab pressure to give particular results to help secure convictions and defence lawyers lacking skills and resources to challenge scientific evidence in court. My question is, what is the current situation regarding forensic DNA testing in the Australian context? Thank you. That is a very <laughs> long question. <laughs> oh, it's actually quite um, convenient. Um, it was two months ago, there is an innocence initiative, a national innocence initiative where all the different innocence type projects in Australia come together and discuss current research. And the theme was actually how DNA evidence should be used in court and when it should be admissible because there are a lot of different um, problems with, okay, what is this certain set of markers, like the minimum set of markers that you should look at, or when can you actually say this is definitely that person with like a really high probability? Um, what we see, like, and I think in general, if we look at cases of wrongful convictions um, within the US and within Australia, in Australia, the legal system and legal procedures and the forensic procedures are better regulated and more consistently regulated than the different states within the USA. So a lot of problems that exist over there, we don't necessarily have them as much over here or as severe as they are over there. Um, the rules, I don't know the exact rules within the law, 
um, when DNA evidence is admissible. But what I've learned from the conference over there is that the advances that are made within the technology and the kind of comparisons that, comparisons that they could make like 10 years ago, or even two years ago, to what they can do now and like the parts where they can get evidence from, um, it is very strictly regulated in the institutions um, how it should be evaluated. An expert wit uh, witness always has to explain in court. Um, what also became very clear is that a lot of lawyers don't quite understand statistics and probability and that is very problematic to when explaining the probability that the DNA matches that person within a specific way. Um, but without, now I actually lost my train of thought, but I know that is better regulated over here and the rules are very strict, but there is discussion still going within the scientific community and within the legal community in how it should be used and how much emphasis there should be on using it within a court setting and to um, as piece of evidence. And I don't know if you... I've just, I've just three things to add. Um, firstly, the, the, the way that DNA evidence um, comes into the trial is that the, the person who's giving the DNA evidence has to be qualified in it and they have to show how they have used their, their expertise to, 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 um, to come to whatever DNA analysis that they've come to. So they would have to, to give evidence in court. Um, and so flowing from that, the second um, issue is um, they need to give evidence in a way that the jury can understand it. Okay, so the lawyers need to be on top of it, but also the jury have to understand it. So what was done in a recent trial was that the DNA expert actually did a PowerPoint presentation to explain um, the DNA evidence and to, they used diagrams. That was used in the, the recent trial, the murder trial of Robert Zhu. With, um, Z, I think it is. Z. Um, and uh, uh, from all accounts, that was quite effective to, to, to break down the evidence in that way because it's highly technical. And just a, a third thing with DNA evidence, um, there can potentially be unfair prejudice caused by the way that the evidence is expressed. So you can express the evidence as a percentage as a percentage or as a, um, as a frequency ratio. So in a recent, or oh, not that recent, but a high court case there was, the expert gave the evidence as a um, frequency ratio, so the DNA was the same as one in, I think it was 1,600, and also gave it as an exclusion percentage, that is that the DNA matched the accused 99.9%. So if you gave the, if you expressed it, the evidence in the 99.9%, there's a danger that the jury would go, oh, Rounded up 100%. That's pretty much. That's pretty close to it. Um, so you really there's, there has to be fairness in the way that the evidence is expressed to the jury, so that they're given both um, both both ways to express the DNA match. I mean, I wonder if also there's just the uh, if we if we you know acknowledge that there can be problems with the DNA. Um, the way that it's used, the way the data are presented, there's simply the question of comparing to how it's been. I mean, the, you, you were talking about proving or, you know, establishing that somebody um, is, is linked. Um, but in the cases of, like, Tim Cole that I started out with and the many, many that you can read about on the Innocence Project, it's mostly about showing that it cannot have been that person through the DNA testing. So I suppose there's also the balance of the payoff of, you know, yes, while they might, it's not perfect, um, for many people, it's a hell of a lot better than not having it, given that you know it can actually rule people out who've been convicted on on, on other yes. um, grounds. Yeah. Hi, thank you for the presentation. Um, I'm a criminal lawyer. I've worked in criminal law for a number of years. Um, my question is twofold. 
Um, firstly, a common theme in the answers is um, defence lawyers don't utilise experts when possible. Um, the, the problem with that is most common you'll find your average client doesn't have a few thousand dollars to have an expert there. Um, and in fact, a lot of the time, in my experience and in cases I've dealt with, if we had an expert or were able to um, sort of hire an expert, um, the case might have gone very differently. But unfortunately, within that matrix, you have to sort of account for the fact that the client doesn't want to pay an extra few thousand dollars um, on top of what he's paying for legal fees and counsel fees. Um, and there seems to be no way around that. Um, and secondly, the other thing that I find very common is when you have civil magistrates or, or magistrates or judges from a civil background sitting in criminal trials. And my experience is when you run Section 137 arguments on whether the probative value outweighs um, the prejudice suffered by an accused, you will commonly find a, a judge or magistrate who sat in on criminal trials or, or who's, who's worked in the field is more likely to exclude the evidence because they appreciate the, the prejudice. Um, however, magistrates or judges who don't have that experience um, seem to fall on the other side and there seems to be no way around, no way around that. Um, and that's a common problem that I experience in practice um, daily and I, and I think that the system should be changed that um, magistrates or judges coming from a civil background shouldn't be sitting on criminal tries, <coughs> trials because they just don't appreciate um, the, the evidence and, and the problems with, with, with evidence of that kind. That's a question for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I suppose that they're, 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 your, they're your thoughts. Um, that problems can arise when, um, when somebody, I suppose, doesn't have as much experience in, in the criminal um, law. But I, I've known of, of, of judges who've had a civil background who've been great at criminal trials. So um, I think it's, yeah, I mean, it is a discretion to exclude. Um, so, you know, it comes down to their choice whether the evidence is in or, in or out. But um, I, do, I do agree with you about the cost of experts for the defence. That is a big problem because a lot of the forensic science experts come from police um, and so are available for the, to the prosecution. But the defence does have difficulty in being able to pay for um, experts and also to locate them. Yeah. <coughs> Can I just follow up um, briefly on this question of experts um, and, you know, something that you raised, Celine, about science. Um, and it sort of comes back to Helen's, um, you know, presentation. So I'm just interested in the kind of uh, stance toward, you know, from the law toward scientific experts. So, you know, Helen, for example, if, you, if, if there was a, you know, I mean, one, one reaction to what you uh, talked about would be to say, hang on a second, if it's been scientifically proven, we might say, you know, with the usual caveats, that these priming effects are there and that this, you know, th this practice of, of uh, doing transcriptions and priming people doesn't make sense and it's damaging and so forth, why isn't it just stopped? You know, is there something, I mean, what is the reason why the change is not made? Is it just because it takes so long to get changes made or is it because there's some animosity toward experts of a certain kind and why is it that a detective can be admitted as an expert um, transcriber when uh, there's established reason as you showed to believe that they aren't? Well um, thanks Nick. You've uh, let me say something that I've been wanting to say. We've been talking a little bit about experts without really thinking about what 
what is meant by expert in the law. And uh, there is a section, I think it might be 79, that says, describes that an expert is somebody who doesn't just have common knowledge, they have specialised knowledge. But the problem is that specialised knowledge can mean a whole lot of different things. And in this particular uh, area that I work in, detectives are con who do these transcriptions are considered to have specialised knowledge on the grounds that they've listened many times to the recording. That's why I gave you that little thing at the beginning, how many times do you have to listen? And even if you listened so many times that you were absolutely sure, how would you know yours was the same as somebody else's? So the detectives actually have a status within the law called ad hoc expert, meaning that they're not an expert in the normal sense that you or I might think as an expert, but they have kind of specialised knowledge in relation to the evidence that they're presenting in that case. So that's one reason is that it's not exactly clear, it might be clear to you who is an expert in linguistics, but it's not necessarily clear to other people exactly who's an expert in what and what's counting it. But the other really important reason is the power of the incumbent. Uh, for 30 years, the law has been developing, I'm just talking about my area now, I'm sure the others would have different views on this, but since 1997, which you might notice 30 years, uh, the law has been developing this whole practice, series of practices, based on their understanding of how speech perception works. They never asked at the beginning for any input because they thought they knew it. And this is very common. I'm sure Nick will back me up here with language and speech. There is a science of linguistics, a science of phonetics. But most people think, well, we can, we can all listen. I can listen and hear what something is. So uh, they've been doing that all this time. And now if somebody comes along and says, oh, by the way, it's, it's wrong, they say, well, but we know it's right, so it's a real problem that uh, changing something that's become established over 30 years. So in fact, I'm really trying to make something of that 30 years. So if you can publicize these issues, that we should change this ad hoc expert rule for 30 years is long enough, I think. There's a very good article in the, the conversation, if any of you read that, by a colleague of mine, Professor Kate Burridge. I think it was the 7th of July, uh, 7th of June, something around there. She, she goes into it very, very well indeed. Um, sure. Um, what I know, like, we've got like a similar issue. If we look at the history of psychologists within the legal system, it was only until like the early 2000s, I think within Australia, that psychologists were only allowed to comment on any mental disorders that, or competency to stand trial. So if anything, it's forensic psychology in a very like um, strict term of the like terminology. So it was only how clinical psychology would influence that person to commit that crime or competency to stand trial. And what we see as well, just with all the research that has been done over the years and what's come out and how we can contribute about like eyewitness memory, identification evidence, that I think it was early 2000s, that was the first time that somebody was actually allowed a forensic psychologist to be an expert witness on eyewitness memory um, and eyewitness accuracy within a trial. So it's, it will just take time before you make changes, like the law doesn't change easily, but we're all here to try to make a change. Well, I'd just like to add one little thing there. I think it's worth, I think Miko might agree with what I say, it's worth reflecting 
we actually don't want a law that constantly changes uh, every whim of, you know, science changes very frequently. And we don't want law that changes very frequently. Uh, we want law to be very measured and uh, retain a lot of standards over a long time. Uh, it's just finding that balance between when do they listen and, and when do they say, no, this is the way we do it, is the, the problematic thing. I, I always like to make clear, sometimes people assume that when I talk about these issues, or this case or other cases, that I'm in some sense disrespecting the law, and I, I'm really not. The law is a cornerstone of our democracy. We really, really need a, a strong and uh, reliable law. It's just every now and again they have to change, and sometimes they might... Uh, take a little longer than some academics might like, all of us here included, I suspect. Okay. <laughs> Hi, um, thank you, it's been great. But what I wonder is out of the, all of the conversations, is it about educating the police? Is it about um, educating law students um, to think outside of the box? Is, I mean, what is it that we're... If we're saying that every, we believe everything that you're saying, which I do, um, how is it that we create that change rather than um, going along with waiting till the law changes? I mean, we need to be doing something active, don't we? I mean, we advocate for a lot of people. I think there are a number of issues. I think a lot of the people we work with um, have limited money, have limited knowledge... And um, if they're not companioned when they are going to see a lawyer or go to court, they don't know what to ask for. But I think if there are so many people who believe that the system isn't working accurately and there are these sorts of errors, how is it that we can make a difference by, um, as, a, as a group and, and in educating people differently? Um, I, I first want to make it, like, because I just realised that I came across, like, very negative. But, like, in general, the system works. But because it's led by humans and humans make mistakes, mistakes will happen and we need to educate. And I think that's the answer. Um, and what you see, I know within, like, Miko and I have uh, been doing, so. like, we talk to prosecutors, we talk um, with the New South Wales Police Force, we educate them on um, how eyewitness memory works, how to interview people. You see that a lot of the research that has been done by forensic psychologists over time has been incorporated in the procedures that are being used. And like continuous like education, discussion with um, people within the field is the key. But I also think like what we're doing here at university already is just like get it really early. For people that are studying still, like show all the different, like show multiple aspects, see that there's different angles that they can approach a problem to. And as you start early, then once they become the leaders within their field, they can use that knowledge that they actually learn in university. That's my idea. You yeah, know, I, I agree. And I mean, there's, there are a lot of you know, fantastic police and prosecutors and there are a lot of people who are doing great in the system, but it's just when you have... The, the the cases like Andrew Mallard that things you know that things are not going um, you know they're not a hundred percent accurate all the time so um, to catch those things but I mean with the Mallard case it's um, that one of there was a one of the High Court judges who um, determined the 1997 special leave also did the 2000 the, the second special leave and um, it's just interesting to hear his comment on the second special leave he said well, this is this case has a t an entirely different complexion now we were you know 
words to the effect that they were led to believe that the admissions were so strong because special leave applications are so quick. They're only they're limited. Each side has only 20 minutes to speak, and there are written submissions that are filed beforehand, but they're very quick. So the judges deal with them very quickly. But um, yeah. Um, yeah, just I kind of got a comment on this. So I mean, just bring it to a more general. Um, uh, framework that I started out talking about. So we're sort of here as part of this uh, post-truth initiative that we're involved in and the problems that we've been talking about um, get sort of recapitulated in all sorts of other walks of life. You know, our voting behaviour based on um, evidence that's poor, you know, we believe the things that we read in the newspapers, we get fed, um, you know, statistics in different kinds of ways which will either push us, you know, to that direction or the other direction. Um, and you know, as I've been thinking about these things more and more, my feeling is, you know, where we might get some traction is actually get them even younger, um, and that is to say, actually get real kind of literacy programs in schools for kids, which I know is sort of starting up a little bit here and there, but getting people to think about evidence, not just in law, but generally, you know, um, thinking critically in a serious sense and sort of, you know, what counts as an argument, what counts, um, you know, how can data be presented in different ways, what can I know about my own biases, you know, my, my confirmation bias or these other kinds of things. If you could get kids coming through school, whether they're going to be, uh, you know, uh, police officers or lawyers or journalists or whatever it is that they be, they're going to benefit, surely, from having that, having that literacy. So, you know, in a way, there's just so much need for these problems to be solved across society that, you know, that, to my mind, would be where you'd want to start. So everyone involved in this process in a nice, you know, ideal world <laughs> would have the training to actually be able to accept these arguments and see, oh, hang on a second, we're all missing something here, you know, uh, uh, through becoming conscious of their own sort of foibles. Yeah. Um, I just had a question. Given the difference, the the different types of wrongful convictions, in the sense that there's so many things that can go wrong, and a lot of the cases have multiple things going wrong, where you have, uh, you know, an expert that should have been called to look at evidence that wasn't, and maybe in the Gordon Wood case or Eastman, you've got experts who perhaps have done their job pretty badly, and you know, you've got just a, a whole raft of different reasons. Um, and one of the reasons as well is the, obviously the public pressure. Will the public accept someone not being convicted? Because, you know, which in the cold light of hindsight says, well, there wasn't evidence that was their main evidence. But I guess the question is sort of how do you factor in then that public perception of justice having to be done or conviction having to, whether even justice gets done? I think it's a big problem because with a lot of the cases of wrongful convictions, where you actually see is that they often don't quite have a lead, but because it's such a, like a high-profile case or it's a very heinous crime, so you've got a lot of pressure, not just from the public, but also from within the police just to find the perpetrator. And because you do that, as soon as someone comes along, that's the person that you're going to focus on. Um, I don't think... I've, I don't know how you can go against it. If something horrible happens... Like, people want to find the perpetrator. People want to find the person that has committed the crime. I wouldn't, maybe you guys would know how you can go against pressure from the public to find someone. 
Uh, no, I definitely don't know the answer to the question. <laughs> if I did, I'd be much more famous than I am. Um, but I can recommend a book that you might enjoy. It's called Failed Evidence, and it's by David Harris. I can't remember the year, but it'd be easy to Google. And his uh, theory is that um, the, the police uh, and the prosecutors really do believe that they've got the right person. Uh, so they're doing it out of a, a sort of good in, intentions. And this, this comes up very strongly in the movie that you probably saw, Making a Murderer, as well, where the, the relation, I think, you know, it's very nice for us to sit here in a university and say, oh, well, we look at the evidence and then we decide. But a lot of people have a very different experience of, of the world where evidence might be used against something that they believe in. Not that I'm condoning that. I, I also believe in, in the proper use of evidence. But I, I think you might find that book quite enlightening just to give, give a broader perspective on how it's seen from different points of view. Um. I, I suppose I, I agree with what you've both said. That yeah, that um, yeah, there's always the public pressure to um, to find who to find whoever has committed the crime, um, and that obviously yeah works um, yeah, when the police are investigating. But um, yeah, I also agree with what what what, you've, what Helen has said um, about the police and and their and and what can happen when. Um, an investigator starts um, looking at evidence with a tunnelled view, um, and so not looking at evidence which might exculpate the the suspect. But I think like that's important to remember. It's like it's a cognitive bias. You're often just unaware of it, and we all struggle from it. And what you often see with us is like cognitive dissonance. When you see yourself in a specific way, and something comes across to you that doesn't agree with how you perceive yourself, you just ignore anything like that, or you just like act in a way that just confirms how you feel about yourself or a situation. And I think the majority, like, yes, there is that public pressure, but it's not that people then say, okay, yeah, they want someone, so I'm just gonna get anyone I can find. They truly believe that what they're doing is the right thing. And with any one of us, if we are in a situation where we are convinced of something and we truly find evidence that confirms that and we're not really looking for any other evidence or outside the box because look, there's more evidence coming in that this person or that this is the case. But for us, like, if we make a mistake like that, it doesn't end up in a wrongful conviction. Or well, not always. Well, I'm just, like, sitting next to a barrister and, like... You know. But, like, the majority of people, it doesn't end up in a wrongful conviction. But I think it's really important that it's often unintentional and, yeah, it, it, shitty. Not yeah. with malice. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we're, we're, not, we're all the same species. So uh, it's very... It's almost like I was saying about that bias blind spot. Uh, you know, the, uh, people believe other people are biased when they're listening to audio with a transcript, but we all are. We can't help it. We actually, it's, it's much more effective to think, what am I missing here, than to think, what is somebody else missing here? It's very easy to see what everybody else is doing wrong. It's what, we're, we're all doing tunnel vision all the time, even no matter how scholarly, etc. we believe what our friends believe and all, all of those things constantly. Oh, can I just add onto that what I just said? Oh, sorry, were you about to say? No, 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 no. no. Uh, the, the important thing, though, is not to just to give up, and I think this echoes uh, what Celine was saying earlier. We, we need systems that take it out of the hands of the individual people. You, you cannot avoid 
these things, by whatever effort of will, no matter how much you go in and say, I'll be as objective as possible, you will not be objective. So we need it to be a, a system uh, sort of thing. Hi. Um, how has uh, how have advances in technology improved the quality or probity of evidence? Uh, for example, uh, better quality voice recordings, or if at all, has, has that improved the quality of evidence? Well, it, it should. I mean, I'm just, if, if you've got better, better recordings, then... Uh, I didn't quite hear what you said, <laughs> paradoxically enough. <laughs> if we had better what, that would improve. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it definitely would be much better if we had better quality audio recordings. Unfortunately, that's not just a matter of technology. Uh, even with quite good technology, you have to use it. Uh, you have to deploy it appropriately. I don't mean use it in the sense of not, not knowing how to use it, but uh, you can have the best technology, and if you don't have the opportunity to put the microphones in the right place, it will be poor quality. That's number one point. But number, number two point is, I played you an extraordinarily indistinct recording. Even relatively clear recordings can easily be misheard. If you're listening uh, to hour after hour of recording with a transcript, you will very easily miss mistakes. It's like proofreading. You know, you write your essay and then look for the typos. You're going to miss a lot of things. So uh, it's... It's better to have, all else being equal, a good recording is better than a bad recording, but it's not a panacea. Um, in relation to eyewitness memory, um, what we see like technology actually has helped us a lot because what, do, what does everyone do now when they observe something? They're not just watching it anymore. They take their phone out and start filming it, so they take a photo. And it's very difficult to, like argue with an actual video from start to finish or halfway through where you see the perpetrator and then say, well, you remember that wrong and you can show the video. So that is, for eyewitness memory at least, that can be an advantage depending on when you start the video, of course, when you finish um, and how it's used. But in general, that has actually, it's quite a good benefit for us. Okay, so one more question and then we'll finish. What is the law regarding making a voice recording of someone without their knowledge? Um, that um, will, for, for, for police, if police are, uh, are doing a voice recording, then they would need to have a warrant under the Surveillance Devices Act. Um, and if it's a private recording, you'd have to look at that act as well to see whether it, it's, it's permissible or not. So I, I, don't, I don't know exactly what the, the position is. I think it's different for um, in different circumstances. So there are some ways when a person can record another person, like not a police officer, and you can use it, but there are some ways where you can't. But you have to look at that specific big piece of legislation, the Surveillance Devices Act. Yeah, but police definitely need to have um, a warrant to, to, to record. Okay, well, um, thank you all very much for your contribution to the discussion. Um, our speakers will be um, sticking around a little bit, at least, I should hope, and there's some drinks up in the back, so um, we encourage you to stick around and continue 
um, the conversation for the next little while. But um, meanwhile, let's uh, thank our panel members, Celine, Nico, and Helen. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.